This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at o'connellcoaching.com. Hey-ho, off we go for another episode of the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Are you ready, folks? Well, you better strap yourself in. We've got a long one today, and a great guest, and a whole range of interesting topics that we get into. But before that, a couple of things. Well, first of all, I hope you're enjoying this trundle through the world of an academic year in the life of the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. We're actually in our third year now, so we've been going for a while. I'm impressed. How about you? I had no idea how long I'd keep going with this, or where it would end up. But I have to say, I'm rather pleased with the direction we've taken. We're focused on quality and stimulating conversation. And it seems from feedback that many of you are too. So here we are, a happy pair. We're not all happy pairs though. In fact, we're having relationship difficulties here at the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. My dear love, my dear buddy, my long-term Buddhist friend, Stuart, has left me at the altar. The podcast altar. He's broken me heart. He's left me on me tod. That means on your own if you're not familiar with Northern dialects. In the UK, that is. Yes, Stuart has taken a leave of absence. And one good thing, though, in preparation for this is that I have a lot of guests lined up. It does mean, though, that you won't be hearing one of our usual banters for a while now. I'm hoping he might come back and join me for a couple more next year, but we'll have to wait and see. In the meantime, if any of you are crazy enough, mad enough, and, well, interested enough, you might like to come on to the Imperfect Buddha podcast as a guest host for an episode. That's right, I'm opening the doors to the excitement of podcasting, to the wonders of the Buddhist world, to the riveting discourse open to those who are willing to share a couple of hours nabbering, chattering on about all Buddhist matters. Now, obviously, you'd have to have a sense of humour. You'd have to be interested in the topics that we talk about here on the podcast. If you're one of those folks, though, why not get in touch through Twitter or some other platform that we use? I like good company, you see and I like to do things with others. So if you'd like to get stuck in, why not give it a try? It doesn't matter your color of skin, your gender, your dietary preferences, or anything else for that matter. We just want good ideas. Now, on to today's guest. He's a Frenchman, a Parisian. He is Yves Citon, and he's a rather interesting chap. Firstly, Yves is a cultural theorist, but he's also a professor of literature and media at a couple of universities which I probably can't name properly. But I'll have a go, even if it's just for a laugh, or at least you laughing at me, especially if you're familiar with French. 
The first one is Université Paris 8, Vincennes Saint-Denis. He's also executive director of the École Universitaire de... This is the difficult bit. It could be Recheke or Recheke. Sounds like a dance move, doesn't it? Sorry, Yves. He also taught for 13 years at the Université Grenoble and for 12 years in the Department of French and Italian at the University of Pittsburgh, which, well, probably explains why he speaks such fantastic English. He's also been visiting professor at New York University and Harvard. The reason I invited Yves on is because of a fantastic book he wrote called The Ecology of Attention, published in English in 2017. It forms the basis of much of our discussion, which goes off in interesting directions, one of those being another book he's written called Mediarchy, which is going to be published in English in 2019. If you speak French and you find it interesting, it's out there already. Yves offers a whole new perspective on the problem of attention in the digital age. And because he's not a Buddhist, or even necessarily spiritual, I think he has a very original and interesting complementary perspective on attention that many Buddhists will find useful. As his work notes, phrases like paying attention and investing one's attention attest to a mistaken belief that attention can be conceptualized in narrow economic terms. We are constantly drawn towards attempts to quantify and commodify our attention, even down to counting the number of likes a picture receives on Facebook or a video on YouTube. Eves argues that we should conceptualize attention as a kind of ecology and examine how the many different environments to which we are exposed condition our attention in different ways. In a world that demands our attention at ever-increasing rates, Eves provides some balance. Eves provides a devastating analysis of the neoliberal attention economy and opens up crucial pathways for resisting its imperatives. As well as the book and topics of attention, we discuss the great forgetting, the culture wars in the States and beyond, the difference between reaction and response, Schopenhauer, and much more. Today's conversation is a long one, but I think it's worth sticking with. Get ready, the French have arrived. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast, uh, Yves Citon, or perhaps I should say bonjour. Bonjour. I'm going to be asking you a variety of questions today, and as you rightly acknowledge, we've got a lot of them, but there's so much that I feel we could talk about, and so much that would be useful and interesting for us to discuss. So we'll see how many of these we get through. I'm going to dive straight in to the first question. Um, your book is about attention, so I think you must have given a, a lot of thought to this topic. But the first question I would ask, just to orientate the discussion somewhat, would be, what are some of the more common definitions of attention? and how do they differ from this idea of an ecology of attention that you develop in your book? There are so many different um, takes on, on attention that I won't even try to give you a list of definition that could be or could not be classical. I would rather um, just say something intuitive, which is that attention is what constructs both our identity, our self, 
and what the world is for us. So I tend to see it as a sort of an interface that filters what comes from the world inside of our nervous system or mind, whatever you want to call it, and uh, also as what uh, describes uh, the, the, or, or accounts for the reactions of our body towards external stimuli. So really seeing it as an interface, as a sort of a filter that commands what comes in and what comes out of our body, our mind, our nervous system, uh, I think would be the most uh, general way to look at it. Um, now, that was for uh, escaping from the, the question of listing classical definition uh, of attention. For the second part, which is why talk about an ecology of attention, uh, this is sort of a reaction not so much against as to try to go forward from what is currently called an economy of attention or attention economy. Um, the, the, the phrase uh, attention economy exploded around 1995, 1996, if you look at Google uh, Ngram Viewer. Um, Really, it was used very moderately before that, and starting with the end of the 1990s, it became very popular. And I think there's a lot of things to say about an attention uh, econ economy. The most uh, obvious thing being that the, the most important capitalization now on the stock exchange come from uh, companies like Google or Facebook, who make money from selling our attention. So our attention clearly is uh, a commodity that can be sold and purchased in bulk and a whole economy can come out of it. So a lot of people study that and I think it's very interesting. In French, I published a collective volume trying to understand what were the stakes of this attention economy, uh, but I think it's not sufficient. So I intended with this book called um, The Ecology of Attention to bring another level, not to, to attack or to criticize or to destroy uh, talks about an attention economy, but to bring it to another level where it's not so much a question of buying, purchasing, exchanging uh, from sort of individual point of views like uh, economics is has sort of an individualistic bias. But it would be more about uh, creating environments, an oikos, like in ecology, which is uh, an environment, uh, a home, uh, a milieu in French, uh, where uh, ecology, where uh, attention takes place. And so to de-individualize attention and to look more into what milieu, what environment uh, helps or doesn't help uh, ourselves to be attentive to our um, environment. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that leads very nicely on to the second question, which will bring some of this topic more directly to Buddhist meditation practice, which is one of the major themes of our, our podcast. I like the fact that you've already mentioned the individual being sort of center stage in the economy. And I think that fits with some of the critique that's been aimed at uh, Western Buddhism, meditation practice more generally, which is that it tends to focus on the individual and their individual relationship with the world around them. This, um, this idea of an ecology of attention makes me think of something, firstly, that's more material, but also that has characteristics of immersion, relationship, and you know, going beyond the, the dichotomy of the self and other. Do you think the idea of the ecology of attention fits well into this view? And how might an ecology of attention expand upon and enrich the William James notion of attention as being what I, the individual, pay attention to? 
So first, I'm, I'm very uh, honored to be uh, asked this question in uh, a podcast called The Imperfect Buddha. I'm not only imperfect, but ignorant <laughs> of a lot of uh, knowledge and wisdom and, uh, and reflections that come from Buddhism. Um, so I'm very uh, honored that you asked me questions. Uh, clearly, I won't try to answer as knowing anything about Buddhism, except for uh, just uh, sort of a general, even for remote interest and suspicion that a lot of the things that I sort of rediscovered by reading Western philosophers or by thinking about issues from Western literature, et cetera, et cetera, uh, only sort of rediscover or reinvent or rehash things that have been already uh, probably identified and uh, reflected upon uh, by uh, hundreds or thousands of years in other traditions. So unfortunately, I'm ignorant of these traditions. I try to read a few things, but it's not uh, very serious. I suspect there are a lot of echoes and a lot of resonance uh, between uh, certain aspects of Buddhism and certain aspects of what I try to develop as a ecology of attention. And I would be uh, glad if you could guide me or if we could have a real discussion uh, where you would inject things that would uh, also enlighten me on some of these uh, resonance. As you said, uh, the notion of relationship is uh, crucial to uh, what I'm interested in within ecology of attention. When I said earlier that I presented attention as a form of an interface whereby both our worlds and ourselves uh, construct each other other in relation, it's a very much a relationist approach thing. First, there are relations, and then out of these relations, uh, individuals are are based. Uh, Or first, there are environments, and within these environments, what um, uh, Karen Barad, the theorist of uh, quantum physics and also epistemologist, Karen Barad uh, warns us against the very notion of relation as interaction. Because when you think of relation as interaction, you have two things or two individuals or two entities, and there's something that comes in between them, inter. She insists in us thinking in terms of intra action, interaction. First, there are environment, there are milieus, there are universes, whatever you want to call it. And within these environments, things constitute themselves through the relation, but all always within these relations. So I think to talk about immersions, uh, as you did earlier, again, there are two ways to, to approach it. Either you think something is immersed into a universe and the thing pre-existed, or things emerge from relations and the, the within is a presupposition to what happens. Now, why is that important for uh, attention? Again, because I'm going to take maybe a very uh, simple and uh, difficult also example, which is the way problems with um, deficit in, in attention, uh, ADHD, you know, attention uh, deficit, etc., hyperactivity disorder, the way this is uh, treated mostly in the United States, but also in France and in other countries now is is to individualize the problem, to say, oh, your kid has uh, um, ADHD uh, and he needs or she needs to take some pills, or some Ritalin or something to increase his or her capacity to be attentive to what's outside. And this is typically thinking, oh, uh, we have individuals, the kid and say the teachers and the interaction between the kid and the teacher is not optimal. The kid can stand in place or he thinks about something else or he talks, etc. is distracted and we need to fix it by working on the kid. 
which is to give him some pills. Typically, an ecology of attention would say, well, let's look at the environment. Let's look at the milieu of first, clearly, the classroom, uh, but more largely the school and the neighborhood and the family and all these things. It's the result of intra-actions, of pressures, of incentives or lack of incentives, etc., etc., that will lead a teacher and a kid not to be able to have this ideal interaction we, we think of. Uh, so I think this is both very abstract to think in terms of intra-action instead of interaction, etc., but it can be also very concrete in terms of how do we face very practical problems that now are faced within one certain approach, which clearly has its merits, but also its problems, and which could be faced through another approach. Uh, again, more ecological than individualist. Again, the, the immersion, because uh, all this is to react to your notion of relationship and, uh, and immersion, um, you can think that the kid is immersed in the classroom and you need to increase his capacity to be attentive, or you could think first, there is a classroom which uh, puts in position a teacher and a number of children. And from this situation, from this environment, from this milieu, rather than from one of the individual, we're going to uh, send the question. It's funny because often when we're talking about things like attention, especially in the public sphere, questions come up about complexity and simplicity. I like the fact you, you, in your description there were both of those characteristics at play. But it seems to me that the ecological view is ripe for exploration in terms of rethinking, as you were suggesting now, the way attention is formed and shaped by all kinds of uh, environmental uh, factors and influences. To come back to your point about Buddhism that's interesting is uh, looking at the ideological forces that construct the kinds of experiences that meditators have, whether, you know, doing regular meditation at home or being part of a group or going on retreat. And that's been a critique that we've been exploring here at the Imperfect Buddha podcast for quite some time. Uh, this is an element that's pretty much missing from traditional Buddhism, which is something that we've talked about, but we've also been exploring two positions, one that may be familiar with you. The first one is a post-traditional approach, so looking at the application of, let's say, current knowledge or different kinds of modern thought to Buddhist practice, Buddhist teachings, and some of the implicit assumptions of them. The other one we've been working with here on the podcast which I think might provide a sort of initial basis for thinking about this ecological view is the thought of uh, Francois Larouel, uh, this non-thought. The big challenge, in a sense, as you've been indicating, is bigger than the individual and it's bigger than the notion of the inside and outside or the individual and the other. It's radical, it's major change going on in the attention and the way we relate to attention. And one of the things that, that comes up that people are challenged with, and meditation has been proposed as a solution to, is the the changing of the way uh, the younger folks, you know, these digital natives, are growing up immersed in an ecology, right, an attention ecology, but an ecology that's deeply problematic, which is that it's seeking to enforce a sort of normalization of capitalist values, behaviors, and identities on these younger generation by immersing them in Google, in Instagram, in Facebook. And it seems to be giving rise to a new set of sort of pathologies that perhaps we still don't quite understand fully. 
Have you given much thought to the implications of this kind of immersion in the Google world, the Instagram world, the Facebook world, what it, effect it might be having on the, the very, very young generation who, who don't have this sort of historical experience of distance, you know, like you and I do with our generation. They're immersed from the get-go. Uh, thank you. That's a very uh, important and difficult question. So I don't pretend I have uh, easy solutions or clear analysis of this because we're discovering it. And for all of these media, I mean, the, the book I published in French after the, the this question of ecology of attention was called Mediarchy, and it will come out actually next year, I think, also uh, by Cambridge Polity Press. And Mediarchy, the, the, the power, uh, arche, uh, of the media uh, is a discussion of precisely this environment insofar as our current environment is not so much trees and uh, songbirds and things like that, but rather television and screens and uh, Facebook and Google, what you were mentioning. So again, I think we have to understand this milieu and this environment as such, and that means understanding media. And among these media, there are clearly digital media, which are changing so quickly our relation to our world. And the the way our world is constructed by what we pay attention or what we don't pay attention to, that it is uh, clearly a crucial issue, which again, we're not uh, ready to face because writing has taken centuries and millennia to uh, make its impact on uh, the human species. Uh, radio, television, we've been practicing it for less than a century and we still don't understand what it does to us as communities, as mankind, and uh, the internet has just been here for 20 years so we have no clue what it's what it's doing to us now and what it's gonna do to us in the next decade a number of things i think we can say is that the main uh, novelty of uh, digital media is not so much what is put onto our screens and what comes to our ears and our eyes. Because if you think of it, a lot of it is just uh, channeled through digital media, through the internet. But the experience of watching a movie, the experience of reading text, even if clearly it's different to read a text on paper rather than reading a text on a screen, et cetera, et cetera. I think the main difference when we want to think about environment and attention and the digital media is the way digital media documents and track our attention. Precisely when I read a book, nobody knows how quickly I turn the pages. If I skip that chapter, if I stay a long time on that page, etc., etc. When I read a, a digital book, Amazon or whoever is uh, providing it to me can, if it wants, find trackings of how long I spent on that page, of whether I skipped that uh, chapter or not. One can assume, can uh, decide for the second edition of that book to uh, suppress the chapter or to to invite the author to shorten or suppress the chapter that everybody skipped because clearly it was not interesting. Which means what? It means that by tracking our attentional behaviors, we reconfigure the very offer of what is proposed to our attention. Which, again, was the case when you have a series of films, uh, I don't know, uh, it's clear that the second or third or 15th uh, episode of Superman will take into account what audiences will have said or thought about the, the first edition. So. Again, that has happened in books for a long time, but it's so in instantaneous, it's, it happens so instantaneously now and so massively thanks to big data that there is a real risk of 
our current attention or the profiling of our past attention determining what will be offered to our attention tomorrow. And that's not a bad thing in itself. That's great. It just focuses on what we might be interested in or on our taste. The problem, as you alluded to in your um, speech before, is that what rules all of this, the, the dynamics, the rules that uh, structure the dynamics of it all is the rule of capitalism, which may or may not be a bad thing in itself. We can discuss that if you want later on, but that's a complex issue. But what we know is that there is one force that drives it all, and it's the force of uh, capital, that is uh, return on investment, that is profit. And the fact that all of our relation with our environments, if you recall what I said earlier, attention is the interface that constructs both our inner self and our outer environment. The fact that all of this is filtered through one dynamic, one logic, which is profit made on investments of capital. Again, this is one aspect of how do you uh, steer investment in a way that they maximize a certain number of things, including uh, utility, and that may be great. But we also know that there are a lot of biases and there are a lot of short-sightedness, for instance, which is built in uh, capitalism as such, and which is now threatening us all on planet Earth, uh, as is obvious with questions of collapsing of biodiversity, or climate change, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, the novelty of these digital media is how profiling of our attention made possible by uh, digital media, by the collection, the harvesting of big data, will and is already uh, structuring what is offered to attend to our, to our attention in possibly sort of vicious circles or circles that are vitiated by uh, the one criteria that is ruling now, that is dominating now, which is uh, financial profit. Now, this is a sort of the most general thing I would say about that. Now we can enter into details about uh, what is done to our attention against under uh, the pressure of capitalism in terms of what is attractive or uh, the, the time issue of what has to seduce us very quickly in order to catch our attention, in order eventually to sell advertisement, etc. And this, I like to distinguish it from uh, digitalization as such, because what I said earlier, digitalization makes possible the tracking of our attentional behavior. That's uh, quite absolutely new. Whereas the fact that, for instance, I think the, the, the usual thing that is said is that over the last say 30 years or the average sequence of uh, unedited images, moving images that we are exposed to diminished by half. So if you want uh, 30 or 20 years ago, uh, the average uh, shot was uh, seven seconds and then you had a cut and then you had another image, a moving image. And now apparently it has diminished more or less by half. So every three second and a half as opposed to every seven seconds, uh, images change. Now, what does that change? Whenever something like a change of image, editing happens in moving images, it sort of um, viscerally attracts our attention. Uh, our nervous system is geared to face danger and to be aware of danger, being a watch out in English, say watch out, to watch. In French, you say attention, faire attention, so the same word as being attentive to. So we are built in, our nervous system is built in a way that whenever an image change, we suspect danger or whenever there is movement 
different, and therefore we have to uh, be attention. We have to, to look at what happens. And that's because of millennia of survival in uh, dangerous environments. Uh, now, the fact that this stimulus, uh, if you want, or in French, I think in English, you say also the word saliences, saliences, something that's salient, something that attracts salient, your yeah. attention. Yep. Salient, right? Uh, now, the fact that what I was saying earlier about movement, it movement is salient. That is, you cannot not see it or not hear it or hear these things. Now, the fact that the pace and uh, the, the imposition of these saliences has accelerated in our uh, medial environment over the last 10 years means that we become, you can say, addicted or just we, or our level of tolerance or our level of expectation has changed and that if something doesn't change or if the, the, the shot doesn't change, is not edited uh, after three or four seconds, we tend to think something's weird or we tend to be bored or we wait for something to happen which is not happening, and then we tend to look somewhere else, etc., etc. Uh, so this, I think, is a major change in, you said, digital natives. But again, it's not so much digital uh, because this is uh, something that was happening through television before television was digitized. So there is another problem with uh, with certain development of media under capitalist pressure, which make make new generations uh, addicted to uh, constant saliences and which makes it much more difficult than to uh, think for yourself or to, as you as you said earlier, meditate. Now, I don't know anything about Buddhist meditation, but clearly that is one uh, way, one change challenge and one uh, possible solution to this uh, increased pace of, um, of stimuli and saliences that is inflicted upon us by uh, capitalist media. There's a lot there, a lot of interesting <laughs> potential avenues to follow on with, but I've got three points I want to I want to add. The first one is that um, I teach in various age groups, but I, I teach high school students as well on occasion. And sometimes um, they arrive early and I'll arrive and I can see them sat around outside the classroom. I look at their relationship with their mobile phones and it's very interesting. It's It's got an, uh, an element almost of perversion to it because it's very intimate. So the way they touch the screen, the way they hold it, the way they, they, they place it in relationship to their body, there's a great deal of intimacy. And the other point that goes with that, and this is a seeming paradox, is connected to what you've just said, is that they do seem to be plugged into a form of hyperattention, and it leads to many of them being on edge all the time, which relates to what you were just saying about the the switching of images and the stimulation of the nervous system. But I also see this in adults, so you know, adults of, of our generation too and older, that it's setting up these new in a sense, uh, practices of feeling in which this intimate relationship with the mobile phone or the computer screen or whatever it is, it actually it creates a new kind of intimacy that this person carries throughout their day. Um, I think there was a study I read a few months back, I'll probably get this wrong, but it says something along the lines of the average American touches their phone several thousand times in a day. And I'm just trying to think, you know, nobody ever touches anybody that much. <laughs> Not even themselves, you know? I mean, maybe they tap their thigh or something, but in terms of actually stimulating a conscious, semi-conscious or unconscious connection to an object, whether it be the body or something else, this is, this is also a new experience for our human species. And again, as you were rightly saying, it's, it's stimulating on some physical or nervous level uh, a new way of being in the world and a new way of being with other, in this case, the phone, I guess. Um, and it's very interesting. And I was thinking about meditation practice and the comment I made, which feeds to the next question, which is that 
within the critique we've made on this podcast about the alignment between the sort of neoliberal agenda and its idea of self-improvement, mastery, individual responsibility, and so forth. Meditation, especially in its form as mindfulness, has been very much paired uh, unquestioningly with that underlying uh, ideological force. And one of the things that I would like to see, which is not a return to tradition or a return to some ancient past where things were less complicated, but is the development of other types of meditation practice, which we don't even have to call meditation, but they would work on something like qualities of space and distance, you know, and the experience of space and distance. So if a person is developing this very impulsive, nerve-driven reactivity uh, of constant dependency on some kind of stimulation and these consequences of stress, hyperattention, addiction to stimulation and so forth. One practice, which is something you do mention in your book, could be uh, the use of something like a, a relatively secular form of meditation practice to develop new kinds of intimacy with the space between a person and their phone or within a, a culture, you know, a small group and their sense of what it means to consciously get into touch with that kind of hyperstimulation and perhaps reconfigure it, rewire it. I can imagine practices like that actually going beyond the label of meditation and being something that we could even teach, you know, to kids in elementary school or middle school so they can actually become, as you were implying before, more capable of thinking independently from these highly tailored uh, thought processes, which are the inevitable outcome of tailoring every sort of, um, let's say, app or link or advertisement to the supposed needs of the individual, which have been mapped through, you know, algorithms written by who knows what or who knows who. So, you know, again, I said a few points there too, but that's the direction that perhaps we can talk about briefly now. You talk about practices more generally. So does this resonate? And are there other kinds of practices as well that you've given thought to? Absolutely. I am, as I was listening to you, I was thinking of this uh, fantastic document, which has been made by a friend of mine called Nicola Nova, N-O-V-A. He teaches in Geneva. He's both sort of an anthropologist of new media and a designer, etc. And he put a PDF that you can easily find for free on the internet called Curious Gestures. Curious Gestures. And this is typically what you said earlier, how we touch our phones. He tried to classify to a sort of a general view of what we do with our phone. And clearly with a finger, we can caress it. But there's so many other gestures that we do with our phones. And he helps us think see that first and clearly there is a desire that's involved in it and I, I think we go back to what you said earlier about relationship you said we don't even touch each other uh, so often as we touch our phone but touching our phone is touching each other uh, I'm thinking of this wonderful um, chapter in Kenneth Goldsmith uh, Uncreative Writing I don't know if you're familiar with Kenneth Goldsmith he's a professor of literature he's a poet he's one of the early um, uh, activists on the internet and he published a book in 2011 I think which was called Uncreative Writing where he sort of theorizes his practice of doing uh, cut and paste activity uh, from what is uh, available on the internet as a form of poetry. And there is a wonderful chapter in there where he asks himself or he just analyzes himself when he posts something on Twitter or Facebook or something and then the, the type of emotions that he has uh, waiting for the first uh, reaction and how he looks at his uh, phone and how, he, how, how much desire, how much relation, uh, how much wealth of relation is in there. So we tend to think uh, that it's so much poorer to uh, look at your telephone rather than looking at a human face. And it is so much poorer for a lot of 
aspect, but there is also some wealth uh, that's built in these machines, and it's not because people are stupid that they are fascinated by their telephones or by these new media. It is because these media have a power and a power of relation relationship, which is uh, extremely uh, important and which shouldn't be looked down upon. So for me, the, the the main thing about all these media issues is to always measure ambivalence. It has two values, two opposite values, and in each new invention from uh, early in, in mankind's development, there are threats that come with it and there are marvelous things that come with it. Trying to sort out what's dangerous and to keep away from and what's fantastic is uh, is the real challenge rather than just as is done now in France. There's a new law saying that kids are not allowed to bring their telephone, their smartphones in school. And I understand that there are good reasons to say we want to preserve sort of a, an ecology of attention within the classroom that's not totally constantly distracted by phone calls, by gaming, et cetera, et cetera. So that makes a lot of sense. And yet this sort of radical and simplistic attitude to say, oh, the telephones are banned within the classrooms in France. I think this is uh, much too simple to uh, really face the challenges of these ambivalences. Uh, so first, uh, what you said about intimacy, I think, uh, again, as I said earlier, uh, attention is that interface that builds the world outside of us and the world inside of us. Media also build that interface, filtering, pre-filtering what comes from China, what comes from my neighbor, what comes from my family. Uh, so these two layers that are intimately linked of media and attention, obviously they're intimate because they build my intimacy and they are what uh, fuels it. Uh, and they are how I enter in relation with uh, with other people. I think in what we said earlier and in the, the, the relation to meditation, what I read from the outside about meditation, I can fairly easily classify it in two categories. And I think that, I'm not sure, but I think that's what you uh, refer to, which uh, you and your listeners are probably much more familiar with than myself, which is people who use meditation with an external purpose, which would be, which is not to burn out. So you need to work and you're overstressed. And so you're going to do your five minutes meditation between one and one or five so that you calm down. And then at one or 10, you can go back to work work and be more efficient than if you hadn't done that. And for me, this means that we have predetermined, we being either me as an individual or rather we as a, a micro community, whether it's my company, whether it's my uh, family or whatever, we have predetermined what comes out of that moment of reflection, meditation, call it the way you want. And there's another way, somehow I identify that more with Buddhism, but it may be due to my ignorance, where you open times or spaces where you protect yourself from stimulation from the outside, and something happens with what has been stored and what's already inside of your of your unit of your the entity that you uh, that you uh, constitute and you don't know what's going to come out of it not only that but you don't know what kind of new purpose or what kind of new end will be generated by this temporary moment or space of closure 
think it's fairly easy to uh, differentiate these two points of view in the way people in the Western world now talk about meditation. And I think one is uh, very useful, I suspect, because, yeah, you want to continue to do your work and not burn out. So that can be very uh, necessary to do that. I think the other one is deeper and much more important because in terms of civilization, in terms of society as a whole, in terms of mankind inhabiting the earth, we can no longer just be more efficient doing the same thing we've been doing over the last decades with the same ends, because clearly this leads us to crash against an, an ecological wall, collapsing a biodiversity and all these things we, we, we hear about uh, more often now than 30 years ago. So this necessity to use a space of reflection, I tend to speak uh, in, in terms of a space and moment of reflection, but these spaces of reflection, I think we have to consider them as opening the emergence of new ends or questioning of the ends that command why we meditate and why we enter these spaces of, of meditation. Well, that leads nicely on to the next question, which in a sense is a response to what you've just said with your last um, sentence, which is that individualist accounts of attention and agency often end up wittingly or unwittingly incorporating a liberal, the neoliberal dogma of self-improvement, mastery and individual responsibility. Uh, but there's also the romantic view of uh, becoming one with nature, which often ends up within spiritual practices in general, I would say, uh, but certainly often in Buddhist practices in the West. And there's something also about becoming one with the universe somehow, a sort of curious abstraction through paying attention to the immediacy of the visible world. I think this is another take on the idea of attention as, as somehow possessed by the individual. I think because neoliberalism is operating very often underneath, um, it, it strengthens this view and this experience of that individual when they enter something like meditation as, as operating as the cause of their experience and therefore having to become sort of micromanagers of their own emotional and perceptual experiences. And in that case, yeah, I guess meditation often gets used in a sense as a coping mechanism or a you a utilitarian strategy for just managing life. And that would certainly be more of the mindfulness movement. Although I think if mindfulness is taught well, it certainly incorporates the second uses you were talking about too. I think the neoliberal attitude, the neoliberal view of the individual is something that's quite problematic in that context. My philosophical tradition in the Western world is very much anchored in a philosopher that was called uh, Spinoza in the 17th century uh, Holland. Um, and Spinoza uh, very much has been um, assimilated from the Western point of view and uh, with a lot of ignorance. Nevertheless, he has been seen and uh, felt as being close to what was called at the time sort of uh, Asian uh, atheism. Or, or Chinese atheism, or whatever they, they wanted to call it at that point, from the, the Catholic Christian point of view. And uh, I think there might be a lot of uh, similarities and a lot of meeting points between Spinoza's philosophy and uh, Buddhism, uh, for instance. So in a way, the fact that you and I are talking to each other now, I think maybe putting Spinoza back in the picture could be uh, interesting. It could be a, probably a bridge between different traditions. Now, why am I bringing Spinoza in? Because one of the uh, scandalous uh, theses uh, in Spinoza, why he was famous uh, in, the, in the Western world, is that he uh, ostentatiously denied a free will 
the freedom of the will. He didn't, he didn't believe in that because he thought everything, and also you mentioned nature, one with nature and universe and so forth. And for him, as we could say from a scientific, what we would not call a scientific perspective, there is no cause, there is no effect without a cause. Um, and the fact that I willingly decide to do that or that I willingly choose to do that is just one of the phenomena in the universe and it must have a cause. So it it is determined by a cause and uh, if you go from cause to effect, you can think of the universe as a chain of causality, a concatenation of causality, which makes it on the face of it very difficult then to say, to talk about responsibility and mastery and so forth. The way Spinoza builds his argument, and that's what I try to bring into the the attention uh, issue also, is to say, yes, at any given moment, what I decide to do or what I decide to pay attention to is conditioned or even determined by outside factors. So I'm not responsible for what I pay attention to now. I'm in the middle of doing an interview with you. You are asking me questions. I'm trying to answer your questions. So I am determined and conditioned by the situation, just as I am determined and conditioned by what I read, Spinoza, etc., etc. The way Spinoza built his major work, which is called The Ethics, it starts with the scandalous uh, refutation or attack against the notion of free will, the notion of possessive individualism. I'm free to do what I want. I'm responsible to do this rather than that. So he starts by attacking this. But the last part of The Ethics on the power of the intellect and on freedom, on freedom as the power of the intellect. And what does it mean? Even if we are conditioned, there are a certain number of things we can do, including meditating, you would say, or reflecting or uh, trying to align our thoughts with uh, norms of reason, norms of logics, norms of uh, understanding through cause and effects. This gives us a certain power. This gives us a certain form of mastery, incomplete. And what we can do is reconfigure the environment that will condition our attention tomorrow. So I'm not free. I don't consider myself free now to uh, say certain things rather than, than others, to pay attention to this rather than that as I'm talking to you now in the present. But I can decide now that tomorrow I will not answer phone calls in the morning or that I will read a book or that I will close all books and go somewhere, close my eyes and see what happens. So I can condition what will come condition me tomorrow, and again, in terms of ecology of attention, is to say, I'm not absolutely free to do what I want with my attention now, but I have some freedom in controlling the environment, the milieu, the ecosystem that will determine and condition my attention tomorrow morning. Uh, So for me, when we talk about uh, individualistic responsibility and all that, uh, I think this is one detour that both makes us beware of all the the discourses on guilt and uh, accusations and uh, disrespect or or, uh, inferiorization, domination, saying, oh, the youth are distracted or uh, these, uh, these people, they don't pay attention to this or that. Well, if they do, maybe it's because they if they don't, it's maybe it's because they can't. Uh, but we together can re, uh, reconfigure our environment so that maybe tomorrow they will be able or I will be able to pay attention to things I'm not paying to attention to now. 
Yeah, that's interesting. It's, um, it sounds like there's a sort of inherent optimism to some of what you're saying. I think it's great that you're displaying this generosity towards these, these cultural circumstances and the challenges that we're facing. And I think that's, that's very helpful because it is so easy to fall into a very simplistic, good and bad moralizing about the forces of change that we're going through. Again, free will is another interesting topic and it has relevance, I think, in terms of how people think about things like meditation or think about their relationship with these uh, these changes to the nervous system that you described before. Yeah, I mean, free will is a funny one. I mean, in an absolute sense, I think it's mad that anyone would have ever believed that absolute free will exists. But there you go. <laughs> Um, in terms of, of Buddhism, there is one interesting post-traditional approach that a guy from the States uh, uses. It's slightly problematic unless we qu- sort of qualify the terminology, but I think it relates somewhat to what you've just said, which is training the capacity to distinguish between reactivity and response. Oh, great. So reactivity, right, we might say is the unconscious, you know, riding along with these deterministic forces. And response is cultivating a quality of attention which allows us to become aware of you know our personal story and the social story and the environmental stories that are all interplaying mm-hmm. in our conscious everyday experience yeah absolutely right? this is great yeah yeah, yeah, and, yeah, then, yeah. and then choosing responses now obviously you know to, to refer it back to what you've just said we don't get to choose in a way that's utterly free but we get to choose within that say lines of inquiry or possibility that absolutely can lead us one way or another right yeah yeah if i can if i can just uh, add a footnote to this yeah. i uh, encountered the same uh, distinction between reaction and response through a deleuzean tradition this french philosopher called gilles deleuze who was active at the uh, end of the 20th century who was very much inspired by spinoza also who uh, described and he was inspired by another guy called bergson Henri bergson at the beginning of the 20th century and what did they all say in common to say oh what is a human brain a human brain is emptiness. And this somehow maybe, again, I'm ignorant, but might resonate with uh, with things coming from the, the Far East. And why did they say human brain is emptiness? Because it is what allows for a certain distance, for a certain delay. You can take it in terms of, uh, of space and it would be distance in terms of time and it's a delay between the stimulus and the reaction or the response. And when you don't have that delay, when it's sort of immediate, and it's interesting also that we use the word media, mediate, to say that it's mediated or immediate, but when it, let's call it instantaneous, when you have an instantaneous reaction, then it is, uh, I think, what you referred to earlier as reaction. In order for it to be a response, you need to have a certain gap, a certain delay, a certain something which allows for what? Which allows for the stimulus to, in a way, being metamorphosed, be transformed, be altered, be deviated by what happens on the inside of something that is momentarily closed. And when earlier I talked about spaces, of reflective spaces, it was precisely that to say uh, you need um, a a moment on a space uh, where uh, the things that come from the outside can macerate, can ferment, can uh, be changed by the microsystem of what happens within you, yourself, your nervous system, your mind, whatever you want to call it, your body. And if something happens that deflects 
the, the what would otherwise be sort of instantaneous and automatical reaction, then you can think of response. Then you can think of yourself being a subject. Uh, I think this distinction between reaction and response uh, is a very good way to, to frame all these questions of attention. And again, in the words, in the vocabulary that I used earlier, I would say, what are saliences? These saliences that I mentioned earlier, they're precisely what forbids um, the capacity to uh, macerate the stimulus and to come out with something that would be a response which opens a, f a potential of diversity, whereas the, the reaction itself uh, is imposed upon you. So then you can think of exogenous attention where you just react to stimuli provided by the environment versus endogenous attention where you have had been given that space of reflection, of meditation, et cetera, et cetera. And there again, we are very much thinking in terms of milieu, in terms of ecology, of ecosystem, in terms of environment. Does the environment allow you to have that delay or not? And the, the acceleration that a lot of sociologists and psychologists complain about in the current world may be a sign of this diminishing of the space of responses and this augmentation of uh, behaviors that are just uh, automatized based upon reaction. Uh, when we talk about attention in 2018, we have to see our period within the development of mankind over thousands of and thousands of years as maybe the moment where attention as a faculty, attention as a capacity, is being uh, externalized from our nervous system. We have invented Flintstones uh, in order to make our nails and our teeth more efficient. Uh, we have invented wheels in order to make our legs more powerful, quicker, etc., etc. We have invented um, computers in order to calculate things faster than we can do with our brain. We have invented cameras and microphones in order to record uh, things that we see or that we hear. And putting all these things together, we have invented devices that that externalize our very attention itself. What is a self-driving car is a car that is itself as a machine attentive, that pays attention to pedestrian, to red lights, to things like that. So what is left of uh, our human capacity of attention within a world where a lot of things that used to require a human driver tend to be able to replace to these function to replace these human functions by machines? And why not? Nevertheless, what is the specificity of our human attention? Well, precisely to escape from the reactive mode and to develop a capacity to have a responsive mode in the vocabulary you suggested. And that means building environments that instead of pressurizing us into answering, into, yeah, answering quickly, that gives us space, time, the capacity to uh, respond. And that brings me back to the notion of what is capitalism doing? Doing to us now in its neoliberal form, uh, it is really pressurizing all of us into working faster and working uh, with a more strong urge to beat the others in competition uh, within preset agendas uh, that uh, prevent us from developing this environment that would be more conducive to responses rather than reaction. There are questions about the degree of saturation 
we are so immersed within this uh, constant activity that it, it becomes almost impossible, perhaps, for some of the younger generation to develop the skills necessary to resist the uh, sort of totalizing force of this uh, neoliberal order. That, that all sounds dramatic. And another thought that came to my mind is that, uh, in a sense, you know, um, looking back at history, as you've just suggested we do, the peak of neoliberalism is leading or will lead to some form of collapse of the notion of the individual. Clearly. We're going to see the rise of China, for example, in the rest of this century. I can't help but feel there might be a, a greater shift towards the conception of the individual within a more collective view. And that might be visible also just to sort of think off the top of my head right now in the sort of culture wars we're seeing in the States, but also in Europe. And maybe there's another element that gets tied into this, which is the degree to which we will become uh, more physically integrated with our machines at some point, and the impact that might have on our capacity to imagine a time in which we exist in any other way apart from this sort of hyper-stimulated version. But that's probably, that's probably a bit sort of futuristic and dystopian, but there are questions that come up. And I think sometimes there's, it's quite scary to talk about the loss of individuality and the loss of the individual. And it's interesting right ground for exploration. But to bring it back to some of the themes I sent to you in the questions, I mean, one thing you mentioned before, which, you know, I can't help but agree with from my own side, is that, you know, the, the ontology on which we rest our conception of attention does determine to a great degree the work and world of attention that is available to us. And, and one of the critiques of mindfulness is that when it's when it's been saturated itself by neoliberal values, which are not made explicit, then what it does is it turns a technology that could be put to good use in creating the sort of space you've been describing today, uh, that it fails to do that, or it does so, but it colors it very much within a framework in which the choices available are only within the neoliberal agenda. I wanted to say something about the culture wars a bit more in the States and Europe, because I think they're they might be the sort of the, the outcome of competing ideologies from the last century. And, and one of the, th the themes that I've been coming back to with other guests is the idea that we need to, in some sense, transcend our obsession with that dualistic thinking and that preoccupation with ideas about the world, ontologies about the world, which are not really adequate or not sufficient for helping us to develop adequate skills to navigate the challenges ahead of us, one of those being the ecological situation and um, impending doom that we're facing as a species. Um, but before we might go a little bit further into that, I just, I just have one question about this ecology of attention. Is it anti-individualistic, do you think, in some way? And what do you think remains of the role of individual agency? Is it enough to go back to what we were saying before about Spinoza? Or is there something else that needs to be added in there? No, well, thank you. Um, it's not anti-individualistic. I wouldn't say this way depends what you call individualistic. If you mean it goes against the individualistic biases and ideologies that are now structuring the way we think about agency, we think about populations, we think about environments, etc., etc. Yes, when I was starting by saying there is something called attention economy, and one of its presuppositions is that we are free-willed individual making rational choices, speaking of an ecology of attention, goes against that. At the same time, for me, what's important, and maybe I can refer to the structure of the book, the way I structured the book is to leave individualistic questions or questions about individual attention for the last part, the last chapter of the book. So for me, the message is to say, we cannot 
think about attention in terms of individual attention by itself. It's, that's the way it's framed. I mean, 90% of what I can read about attention, it comes from psychologists, it comes from uh, people who study kids and, and in classrooms or kids with uh, uh, digital devices, etc., etc. And it's always me and my whatever, my partner, me and my telephone, me or this is very important. And I have a personal experience with my cell phone or with my uh, with my friends or lovers. But one cannot understand that without putting it within the framework of collective attention. And so the book is divided uh, in, in different layers, if you want. And I made it a point to start with the upper layer, which I call the media, mediatic enthrallments or collective attention at the level of the media. What we collectively think about within a culture, you're talking about culture wars, uh, within a culture, we tend to talk about a hurricane that's hitting Florida or an earthquake or terrorist action or whatever. And none of these things are naturally uh, bound to uh, catch our attention. We sort of hypnotize ourselves and each other by thinking that an earthquake happening there is more important than something else, or that a guy going out with a rifle and shooting. 20 people is more important than uh, how we overuse uh, sand, for instance. I've discovered just a few years ago that our use of sand uh, for building construction and so forth is totally unsustainable. And I never hear anybody in the media talk about the way we use and abuse. And there's a mafia of uh, selling and uh, stealing sand uh, around the world. So we keep thinking, we, again, our media enthrallments control or uh, collective attention to be focused on terrorism or certain things like that. So that's the higher level. Then you have, under that, you have what I would call organizational attention. And organizational attention is clearly in the workplace, uh, what your boss tells you that you should pay attention to. And clearly that structures what you are sensitive, what you develop in terms of knowledge, attention, etc. Then there is a level under that, which is called joint attention. And joint attention is the fact that when several attentive beings are in the vicinity of each other, they pay attention to what other people pay attention to. Uh, so we look at each other in the eyes, whether you have a, a micro gesture on your lips, I will interpret that as you being irritated or as you being pleased what I say. And I will constantly adjust what I say, what I do to what I interpret in your reactions, in your the signs of your being attentive to me in one way or another. So that's joint attention. And once you've analyzed what happens at, at least at these three layers, it could be probably a lot of others you, you can add in a more refined way. But at least you have to think about these things and then ask yourself, what am I paying attention to now as an individual? And there it will depend on what you've heard on the radio in the morning, collective attention through media enthrallments. It will depend on what your boss told you yesterday to do and you spend the night doing it or not. It will depend on who's in the room as looking at you. And it, of course, it will depend on who you are, on what you've read, on what you've said, on what you've done before and what has been done to you on an individual basis. So this individual attention, I'm not denying it, I'm not saying it's irrelevant or whatever, it has its autonomy. And then when you look at how uh, neuroscientists or psychologists analyze this individual attention, it's interesting to go down in even deeper level where they tell us you have something which is totally automatic in your attention, that these issues of saliences, yes, you react to that, but it's really your nervous system which react to that. Are you only your nervous system? Are you something else? This could be debated. 
And then there is a sort of voluntary attention, where even if I said earlier it's uh, it's all conditioned, uh, yes, I can uh, make decisions about my attention up to a certain point, and I can believe that these decisions are free. I can voluntarily. Uh, decide to do things rather than than that. And then there's the layer which for me is in between all of these and which is the most important one, which is what I call reflective attention. It's precisely what we've been doing now for uh, for an hour, which is to question ourselves about what we pay attention to. And I would say this is where we became we become subjects. Before that, we are a nervous system or, or, or brains connected to neurons and synapses and all that. Above that, we are media systems or we are societies or we are families or we are firms or corporations. And we are precisely subject at this level where we can ask questions about what should we individually or we collectively pay attention to. And so this is also an individual uh, level. And this is very important. And so I'm not uh, anti-individuality. I think there is an agency here, as we said, uh, mentioning Spinoza. It's a very complex one, but it cannot be addressed. It cannot be understood without doing the work of uh, seeing how much it is conditioned by all of these upper layers. And I think that a lot of what I see as the culture wars uh, would oppose Uh, ways of talking and ways of blaming and ways of judging that are very simplistic in this term of individual agency that deny a lot of this conditioning, which I try to bring in. Uh, That would be one side of the culture wars. And the other side, whether they know it or not, which is the face, the side I would be on, tries to make us aware of these ecological conditioning of our beliefs, of our judgments, of our values, etc., etc. And for me, if a culture war needs to be uh, uh, rephrased and re-understood, it is in between these two two attitudes uh, of just judging individualism uh, in the sense of uh, an individualistic approach that judges what is good, what is evil, etc., etc., and uh, awareness of the social and uh, environmental conditioning of our uh, generation of values. And clearly that's much more complex, so it's much more difficult to make that point when people say, oh, this is bad and we got to send an army or we got to send the police or we got to put people in jail or we have easy solutions to these problems uh, that catch our attention more clearly, it's more salient, but the real uh, challenge for us is to develop that other uh, side, which develops mediations, which understands the complexity of things. Another factor that I think is important, which leads us on the next question, is um, memory and a sense of history. It's interesting, I think, how uh, the attention or the capacity to remember what has happened in the past, whether recently or uh, very distant, uh, in terms of uh, development as physical beings in evolutionary view of history, but then having a look again at the, the cultural developments that have taken place in this century, the last century, and prior to that. There are questions about how historical forces push us towards perceiving ourselves in certain ways, imagining certain possibilities or not. The point you made earlier about the speed of things, I think, has, has created a sense of nowness, which is quite new. Due to this hyper-stimulation, everything's new, everything's constant. And we live in a sort of uh, perennial now, but it's also a now which is isolated in a sense. It's almost idealized in the imagination of people. And I think this immediacy, which we're all compelled to participate in, leads to memory or history often becoming more abstracted. I have this idea sometimes that history almost becomes a sort of black hole, you know, and there's this great collective forgetting. 
within that week we have the culture wars whereby there are these sort of bubbles i think this is one of the negative sides of it the fragmentation of like the media and the authority of the media in which you know we could rely on relatively stable voices which would give us uh, a view we could align with or oppose it was relatively straightforward whether it was good or bad is another question again and i think i'll take your line and not frame it in that context but i think now with so much choice available to us and so much choice which is compelled, as you were saying before, in a way that's tailored to our individual needs. It's quite difficult for a lot of folks, especially people who are aligned with some form of cultural politics or identity politics, to remember or to access a memory or a way of being together which transcends the local, the ideological or the identitarian. And I think there's a great a great deal of loss in that. Also with the speed, because things are so fast, we are actually physically incapable of that say maintaining certain uh, connections to the past. It's like it gets severed by the intensity and stimulation and stress that we're bombarded by. And I think this is changing our relationship with history more generally and is actually leaking into education. Uh, I was listening to a podcast. It was very interesting to hear. They, they threw up some uh, statistics about the, the declining enrollments in certain humanities departments. Now, a lot of people listening will probably be aware of this in more generally, but they were talking about the, the number of enrollments in British universities in history departments has dropped something like by, by something like two thirds in the last 10 years, which is fascinating. And I'm always looking, I'm always curious about and, and driven to look at the relationship between individual concerns and collective concerns and how they interplay. One of those is, is again, with what I would like to term the great forgetting. Now, what are your thoughts on this? Do you, do you have much thoughts on about our relationship with history as you're developing the idea of uh, the ecology of attention? Yeah, I do have uh, some thoughts from very first-hand experience in just what you mentioned from the what you heard on the LSE uh, broadcast, uh, which is that I teach literature. And uh, since the time I started teaching literature in the 1990s, I've seen a constant drop in enrollments. Part of it, I think, is the responsibility of us teachers of literature, which didn't manage to make it appealing and it's not so much sex appeal or whatever as in convincing people that what we're doing is very much important in terms of what you're describing now. We need uh, history, we need literature, we need to think about mediation. The way I present literary studies is to say what you do is you pay attention to the mediation, not to the meaning that tells you this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad, but what are the words, what are the sentences, what are the styles, what are the, the choices that are made in the media itself? the word, the book, the, the image, the sound, whatever, and paying attention to the medium, to the media, uh, helps us so much in understanding how the, the meaning is more or less attractive, how the meaning is uh, confused or confusing, etc., etc. So paying attention to the media, I think, is crucial. And I've seen a drop in enrollment uh, in a way that I can only uh, lament. Uh, we are Part of it, us teachers are responsible for that, but there's also this pressure that we were talking about earlier that is outside of a control and that clearly draws people away from, let's call it the humanities. So you mentioned history. I think for literature, it's pretty much the same. As a teacher of literature, I spend most of my time in the 18th century because I was teaching uh, 18th century French literature. So I spent days and weeks and months uh, living in the 18th century through reading novels and reading philosophy and reading things that were written at this stage. And for me, it's a huge help in trying to be a little bit less lost in the development of new media. Uh, this book, Mediarchy, promotes uh, something called 
media archaeology, which is even different from media history, which I, I discovered lately and I tried to import in France because it was very much underrepresented in France, we can only uh, have a chance to understand new media, digital media, digital natives and all that, if we bring it within the context of at least 500 years. Uh, this uh, will make us feel a little bit less lost and this will uh, show us that a lot of this newness you were talking about earlier, a lot of the things we complain about as being new, they were complained upon uh, two centuries ago. And that gives us some uh, fresh view. Uh, what exactly is new? Because to say that every Everything accelerates to say that there are so many books that are published that we cannot read them, to say that there are more authors than readers. I can give you dozens of quotes in around 1760 where people would write and print that in books in the 1760s. So a lot of these things have absolutely nothing new in what they in the meaning again or what they seem to say and yet the conditions were clearly totally different in 1760 than they are in 2018 so yes things keep changing yes there are things that are absolutely new and that we cannot even fathom what they're going to do to us but we can only understand what is new if we have this historical perspective that you mentioned earlier that will uh, help us discriminate what's just an illusion of newness that has always worked like an illusion of newness and what's actually uh, totally uh, new and has to be uh, understood because it may kill us or it may uh, make us happy. Now, part of this attitude of uh, long-term vision on all these issues, what it brings to me also is a very, a very great suspicion on all the discourses that mention the youth, that mention young folks do this, young folks do that. Because my experience is that uh, if I have hope in mankind and in the future of not only mankind, but just uh, the, the wonderful planet which we inherited, uh, it is when I'm with young people. Uh, it is not when I'm with people my age, uh, 50s, pushing 60s and so forth. I mean, there are great people that I like that are old, but I think we tend like all old people just to see everything in, in sort of gloom because our years are counted and because we see that we're going to die soon and we think everything's going to die soon. Now, young folks, a lot of the ones I see now, it's a very selected audience because these are people who come to the university, people to, who tend to study the humanities, etc. So they are not representative of mankind as a whole. And they come from rich countries in France, etc, etc. So uh, nevertheless, uh, I find them much more aware of the dangers that my generation have been ostriches with hiding our head again under the sand. Uh, I, a lot of the ones I see, they don't, they're not so uh, unaware of the problems. They are doing things. They are changing the way they behave. They are changing the way they think in a way that really doesn't allow me to say, oh, you're uh, young people, you are distracted by your telephone. You are distracted by that. This whole use of distraction being bad and attention being good, I think it's extremely reactionary the way it is used now. I really beware of people who promote attention as being good in itself and distraction as being bad. It's very good to be distracted when what we, when 
what we are all attentive to may not be that interesting. I mean, we need to be distracted from terrorism. Terrorism is not a big issue. I'm sorry. There are so many other issues that affect us and will affect us in the centuries to come much more deeply than a few idiots bombing this or bombing that. We shouldn't even pay attention to that. We create these type of things by paying attention to them. So young folks, I think they, when they cultivate distraction, when a kid may not be paying attention to the teacher, maybe it's because the teacher is just saying, crap. Maybe it's not important what the teacher is saying. Maybe he's right to do something else, the kid. So I would be very much aware of these things precisely because I try to recontextualize them in the long run. Now, what you were saying, I totally agree with you, which is to say this work of recontextualization, I would call it this way, this work of historization of just having a long-term perspective. This is very difficult to do when you are put under pressure just to of constant threat. Uh, for me, the, the neoliberalism is really um, bringing a logical of the jungle inside of our societies. That is, uh, societies uh, help uh, prevent us from immediate threat. And what we do with just giving companies the, the possibility of firing people at any moment without any warning or anything like that, this sort of flexibilization, total fluidification and flexibilization of our societies, it just puts us under constant threat. And that, as we said earlier, then brings you to automatic and uh, instantaneous reactions because you don't want to die. It's like in your battlefield. Neoliberalism is transforming our societies into battle feels. And these are not good places to meditate. These are not good places to think and to reflect. And these are not good places to recontextualize. So uh, this um, duty, I think, we have towards ourselves and towards the future generation, which is to uh, be able to take distance to our current conditions and to recontextualize it within, call it history, call it archaeological perspective, call it the way you want. I think this is very crucial. And that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm worried, just like you, in saying these drops of enrollment, not only because my profession is threatened. I feel very much like theologians in the 18th century. Theologians were dominating in the universities in the, in the 18th centuries. And one century and a half later, they were minoritized. And now there are some theologians left. Uh, God help us. Uh, but uh, they are pretty uh, a minority and not very significant when it comes to commenting on the news, etc. So I think literature professors, history professors are going exactly in the same direction. And I think it's sad because just as we need to think about something like God, I'm not Christian, I'm not a religious person. And yet when I read Spinoza, who talks about God or nature, or Spinoza, you can talk about God or you can talk about nature, and it could be two ways of referring to the same thing. I think it's very important that we think about, I would call it the context, the big context, whether you want to call it God, good for you, whether you call it nature, ecology, whatever, just no problem with me. But we need to think about the bigger context and we need to think about the longer term, about longer term evolutions. And this recontextualization doesn't happen by itself. Again, it's not made possible in the ecosystem of the battlefield. Uh, it's not very much made possible. It's not favored by ecosystem of business schools. It's much more uh, favored by uh, ecosystems of history classes or literature classes. And I think we need them. It's a matter of survival, not just a matter of taste and not just a matter of uh, the elite cultivating some special skills. We all need to have this capacity to recontextualize. Otherwise, we're just going straight into the wall. So um, 
attention being so fundamental to our existence, there are so many directions that we could head off to within this discussion, but we're, we're coming towards the sort of the, the final lap of our discussion here. So we're going to have to whittle it down a bit and choose carefully. There's a point I wanted to, to bring up, um, slightly changes direction, but I think it's important. You argue that work, entertainment and social life converge in a state of constant semi-attentiveness and you know that uh, all of these social apps and so forth are transforming our relationship with everything as we said before you you're not taking a simplistic negative or positive view of this you're looking at, at both ends of the spectrum so to speak uh, one thing that's interesting is that these digital experiences in a way they're expected to enhance our experiences of pretty much everything sex being the one that jumps out Access to constant sexual stimulation in the form of pornography uh, seems to be uh, something that's happening for teenagers at ever younger ages. And a consequence of that has been that in the UK last year, several teenage boys, the boys obviously in a slightly more difficult situation here, have been referred to psychologists and sex therapists because after, you know, stimulating themselves to pornography from the age of 10 or 11, they find that when they actually start getting into genuine physical relationships, Relationships, they're not actually able to get aroused anymore. And I wonder if this is not sort of a sign in a sense, a social sign of the fact that we may be reaching a peak in our capacity to be stimulated. And yet this might be related to the memory issue or topic that we spoke about before. Mm -hmm. Another way of thinking about semi-attentiveness is a sort of stimulation deadening, right? The nervous system being overstimulated, being unable to cope, and therefore becoming less sensitive, uh, less open to stimulation in, in, in a sort of similar vein to depression. I don't know. I, do you have any thoughts on any of this? This sort of the idea that we might be reaching peak stimulation? And, and if so, what, what could be an interesting consequence of such? Again, these are very uh, important and questions. They frame them very well, and I would like to speak for hours on every single one of them. So I'm going to have to say things that yes. are very simplistic. Well, yeah, I will just minutes. take two. <laughs> yeah, I will just take two uh, step backwards. Uh, the first one, what you just said now about the deadening effect and so forth, and the sort of overstimulation which creates some sort of uh, blindness or deafness or indifference. Whatever. This we can just read Marshall McLuhan, uh, Understanding Media from the 1960s, who has very well uh, identified this phenomena before there were anything digital or before they developed. Or so I think um, that would be the first step back in historical term. I'm doing now what we said. I, I historicize or I recontextualize that. So these discourses on British teenagers uh, having problems with sexuality because of pornography through the internet. Uh, first, I would say, okay, let's read McLuhan, and that's uh, before digital age, and that's 1960. Then I would say, read another person who's much less famous than um, uh, Marshall McLuhan, which is a, a friend of mine in Switzerland who teaches cinema in Lausanne, and she, Mireille Berton is her name, and she wrote an amazing book. It's a pretty long book, and unfortunately, it's, it's in French. A uh, 500-page book documenting what was said about the evil of cinema between uh, 1895 and 1820. 
And cinema was causing youth to become blind. It was causing youth to become criminals. Uh, they would see things on stage, people shooting at each other. They would take guns and shoot each other in the street. Uh, cinema was messing up with our brain because this change of images being immersed in different spaces and this changing every few minutes or seconds, this was driving people crazy. And women were caused to leave their husband because of cinema and all these things. So whenever I hear this type of talk about teenagers. I'm sure teenagers are messed up. I, I'm sure teenagers have always been messed up. Uh, I would take um, Dana, Dana Boyd's uh, title of a fantastic book on that. It's complicated. It is complicated. So uh, to, to identify uh, pornography on um, digital media as the cause of this or that, it's possible. Obviously, I was saying earlier, we are conditioned by our media. So clearly, this is part of the conditioning. Uh, I think what we tend to underestimate, and this is what I, I encourage people to read Dana Boyd on these issues, is that we underestimate the capacity of uh, human entities to adapt to different and to challenging environments. Uh, and I think, again, to find people doing um, messed up things, this will always be there and we can always build hypotheses on why they done that. And often these hypotheses are interesting. Uh, um, massively, we should look at how amazingly well most people uh, uh, end up. I mean, very few of us are pathological criminals. And I think it's just totally amazing that no more of us are uh, serial killers, especially given the pressure that's put upon us by uh, the last uh, 30 years of neoliberalism. So some of them just take a gun and shoot, and that's terrible. Um, understanding why they do it, it's very complicated. And let's look at all the others who don't and how amazingly, again, my students behave and react and adapt and find ways to uh, use things against that. So that would be my um, my first response to, to this. The second one about um, the state of semi-attentiveness that, that you mentioned, um, again, <coughs> that gives me the opportunity to, to just deepen a little bit, what, uh, go deeper into what I alluded to earlier when I said that most talks about attention now find them reactionary. Uh, there is one model, and that's another historian. He's called Jonathan Crary, C-R-A-R-Y, who wrote a fantastic book called Suspensions of Perception. That was the, early, the late 90s, uh, 18, uh, 1990s, he published, uh, he wrote that book. And it uh, demonstrated that there was a peak moment of uh, worries about attention, and that was 1880, not 19, not 2000-something, but in 1880, a lot of people worried a lot about attention for good reasons. Because um, the assembly chain was starting. So you needed to focus the attention of the workers on one stupid thing that they were supposed to do very attentively. Otherwise, the whole chain would be messed up. And that's not natural. And that's totally against what we want to do with our attention. So attention became an issue for that. But at the same time, the assembly chain would produce tons of new uh, commodities that needed to be built. So you needed to control the attention of the shoppers in order to buy the things that the workers would do etc. Et so he shows that a lot of things happened around uh, 1880 that started a permanent crisis of attention that we keep living since then. Now, why am I saying that now? Because there is an industrial model of attention, which is uh, which tells us that it, the good good attention is focalized attention. You focus on only one thing, uh, and that's the model that's uh, prevalent 
in the in the assembly line, in school, and in a number of other activities. And uh, clearly, if you're on the assembly line, you need to focus on one thing. Clearly, if you're in school and you're passing an exam, you have a few hours to do something, you're not going to start daydreaming about what happened to you three years ago, etc. So clearly, there are moments like that. But this is totally unnatural attention. This is not sustainable, and this is not necessarily good attention, certainly not good in itself. Being distracted is much more natural, and it's much better, and it's much more sustainable, and we always need to be distractible. Uh, Again, within the the special environment of the assembly line, you have to be concentrated on that. Within the protected space of the school, of the classroom, you can be focused on your exam or what you're saying with your, your teacher and so forth. But in most other spaces, we need to be aware that there's a car coming that can hit us, that there's a bird singing and it can be beautiful, that there are all these other things in terms of threat or in terms of opportunities that are around us. And being distracted is just being open to the world also. So uh, to go back to um, issues that I fantasize as being close to Buddhism, yes, it is absolutely uh, useful, if not necessary, to be able to concentrate, to be able to isolate yourself from the outside world in order to do this work of maceration, of fermentation, of elaboration of what has come in and what will come out differently. So yes, this deep attention, it's Catherine Hales who talks about deep attention, this deep attention, this capacity to have deep attention is crucial. And you need to build protective uh, spaces, environments for that. So yes, this is a social issue to create environment that allows for this um, meditative, if you want, uh, moments to happen. But it is just as skillful to be able to uh, pay attention to the things that come 360 degrees around us that are surprises, that are unexpected, that you weren't paying attention to that because you didn't know it existed. Your ends, your finalities, your purposes uh, made, made you aware of this, but something else would happen for which you need new ends and new purposes. And this state of distraction, and distraction is a good thing. Distraction as being taken away from what you thought was good for you. Uh, this is distraction. This is crucial. And I would say even more politically, um, uh, more politically, uh, what do we call distraction? Distraction is not inattentiveness. Distraction is not being not attentive to anything. I mean, again, I guess if you practice meditation, you know that not to be attentive to anything is very difficult. Uh, So when we say that teenagers or whoever are distracted, we mean they are attentive to something else than what we want them to be attentive in the classroom. They are attentive to something else than what the teacher says. Now, this is not not being attentive. It's to be attentive to something else. And what is distraction? Distraction is an accusation of being attentive to something else than what authority wants you to be attentive to. So whenever anybody talks about attention being good, distraction being bad, there is a political issue is who has the authority to say what we should be attentive to. And again, we're going back to something we said, the main source of authority now is market, is finance, is uh, investment and capital and return on investment. So authority in this very diffuse but very prevalent uh, aspect uh, wants us to be focused on the stock exchange uh, results. uh, And to be distracted for that is a condition of survival in a world, again, that is going straight into the wall, full speed, uh, because it's driven uh, mono 
maniacally by this attention to uh, capitalistic profits. So welcome distraction. We need distraction. We're not distracted enough in our age. And those discourses which say you need to be more focused because focusing is a good thing. Uh, well, it's not so simple. Homage to distraction, then, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's a nice uh, balance as well for some listeners who probably think of meditation as solely being about developing this um, limitless capacity to always be focused and always mm -hmm. attentive. Yeah, yeah, good. Now, uh, oh, I'm going to mention one other thing, actually. It just came to my mind. Uh, I saw this yesterday. Panasonic have just developed a new form of technology, if we want to call it that. They're called blinkers high-tech blinkers and they're designed for office workers <laughs> and it, it it does look like um what they put on horses to get them to focus ahead <laughs> not good you might want to go and have a look at that after yeah yeah it's that's pretty, a good one uh, it's, okay, it's okay, not good. good it's not good but uh, i'd like to finish up with the final question um verso books wrote a very interesting article that was a response to your book and if uh, some of our listeners have enjoyed this conversation they may want to go and have a look uh, there are three points i wanted to bring in but i'm just going to pick up one because i think it, it's a nice way to round off um this multifaceted discussion we've had today i'm going to read you just a little bit from it it's just a paragraph and then i'm going to add one thought and give you the final question It says this, it says, uh, Sitan is right to suggest that new practices of attention, of thought and action are the necessary condition for different politics and ethics. However, there is a bit of an overlap between such an ecology of attentions and other ecological orientated projects that seek to disconnect and transform our relation to time technology and social relations more generally without directly transforming capital or the state. I'm thinking of various forms of local food movements and even slow food. Such projects are necessary, but risk being at best rear guard actions, defending in retreat or at worst lifestyle choices. So that's the quote. And I think it's, it's a critique that you've addressed to some degree in our discussion, but I think it's, it matches well with some of the critique of mindfulness and Buddhism when used and aligned with the dominant capitalist order and the formation of cells within this sort of neoliberal purview, um, which is that basically slow food, you know, alternative banking uh, and mindfulness, you know, they, they almost always end up acting as a sort of hobby for the sufficiently wealthy middle classes who have the time to put into it right and a final question might be this you know what, what's to be done about this because otherwise we just end up with these small silos of ethically responsible individuals who don't have any real impact on the dominant order i wonder are we back to class identities class capture and class concerns or is there some new ground we need to be heading towards um thank you very much that's a great one that's uh, actually it's um, i'm very um Glad you brought it in. This Verso uh, discussion of my book came from Mackenzie Wark, which is who is somebody that I totally uh, treasure. I think I've read his uh, Hacker Manifesto, his Game of Theory, his recent book on the on the Anthropocene, the Molecular Red, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I was very uh, flattered that he would take the time to read my book. Actually, he's the one also who helped me to have it translated into English. So I owe oh, a big, okay. a big debt. And apart from my uh, admiration from uh, Mackenzie Wark, uh, so he's absolutely right in uh, stressing this uh, potential danger 
of um, this movement, again, of uh, closing yourself, either individually or in small groups, over a protected space where you can regain some form of control, mastery over uh, what comes in, what goes out, uh, take the time to respond, etc., etc. So whether you do it individually in terms of meditation, whether you do it collectively in terms of going back to the countryside. In France, there are um, probably in the U.S. and in other countries also, I know more now what's happening in France. You have a lot of these young people I was talking about earlier, uh, some of my students, either go or think about going, of just thinking, oh, this, just the the way we are led to lead our lives in uh, capitalist society is unsustainable, unpleasurable, uh, alienating, so let's just go and form communes uh, in the countryside. This has been happening for years and years. From the 60s on, it maybe diminished a little bit in the 80s, but now I think it's catching again. And I have the fullest respect for the people who do that. I think they're being consistent. They don't just uh, lament about climate change. They build alternative lifestyles that uh, do not, at least do not contribute to making it worse. Uh, So I believe in that. I mean, I don't eat meat or fish because uh, I'm vegetarian, because I don't want to increase animal suffering, because I'm agro-industry. I'm against agro industry and because uh, more largely, I think this contributes greatly to the unsustainability of our lifestyle. So I think this is great and it ought to be done and I'm very admirative of all the people who do these things. And yet it is not sufficient. And I think that's Mackenzie Walker's main point. This is not going to be enough just to say now we withdraw whether we withdraw in meditation or withdraw in communes or we withdraw in small groups or in local production, etc. It is absolutely necessary not to have goods uh, cross the planet just because they are marginally cheaper there while we don't even pay the cost of the pollution generated by the traveling. So relocalizing production and, uh, and the economy is absolutely necessary. But we live in an age where global problems can only be uh, not only resolved, but just addressed at a global scale. Something, I think it was a terrible idea, but the fact is that mankind developed nuclear power plant in the 20th century. Nuclear power plant will be there for 100 and will be dangerous, a sort of huge danger for uh, at least 100, 200,000 years. I mean, we can't even fathom that. Uh, Men as we know them have been around for 30,000 years, more or less. Um, This is 200,000 years, we have no clue. What are we gonna do with these things? I cannot just say, oh, I'm withdrawing in my little commune. If there's a a power plant that goes awry uh, in just even 30 kilometers away, well, I can't just ignore it. My little commune will be uh, unlivable because of that. Uh, So climate change, nuclear power plant, biodiversity, all these things cannot be addressed at the local level. We need to have systemic change. We need to work toward that systemic change. It's a matter of scale. Um, And uh, for me, the the, the thinker who brings a very interesting uh, view on this is Bruno Latour, A-T-O-U-R, Bruno Latour, who started as a science and technology studies, who now develops a lot of sort of philosophical thinking uh, that's very, um, I think, powerful to help us think of ecology. And he describes us not as citizens. Citizen, it's important to be a citizen, but it's within a nation state, which is an important scale, but which is not sufficient. Just defending nation scales, uh, rights, the rights of the citizen is not enough in an age of global threats. So the word he uses for this new entity, this new political entity that we need to conceive us as is 
earthbound. We are earthbound. And what does that mean? It means we are bound to earth. We're not going to go colonize other planets. Let's just stop thinking about it. We are bound here. It's great because the earth is fantastic, but we are earthbound. Just, okay, we're bound. So we have to not mess it up because this is our place. But also we earthbound in terms of a train that can be northbound or southbound. We have to <coughs> address, to pay attention. We have to care. Um, I think in English you say attentive or attentionate. Or oh, you don't say attentionate in English. I don't attentive, remember. yeah. To be attentive, yeah, in French, because in, in the French language, it's fantastic, because you have, uh, you can say attentive to, uh, meaning to uh, to beware of something, but also être attentionné, it's to care for, it's to tend, uh, to tend to something, or whatever. Okay. Uh, so, so we need to, we need earthbound, being also, we need to care for the earth, not just we tie to it, but we, we go towards it. Uh, and so... I think that that gives us a good, uh, good uh, for me, it's a good word because it says, yes, it's great to be more local. It's great to uh, think of my body, to uh, to give me individually that time to elaborate with the stimuli that come in. And so they just don't come out by reaction, but I elaborate a response for what comes out. This is this relocalization. It's very powerful and it's earthbound. I'm just, where do I live right now? What are my attachments? Uh, Bruno Latour is a big thinker in terms of ties and attachment. I am attached to something. It means both I'm bound with it, I'm tied, just like my hands are tied, I cannot do anything I, I want because I'm tied to it, I'm attached, but also it's an attachment, it's love. It's uh, And Latour makes us think, that makes us see that we, our power comes from our attachments, not just our reduction in liberty. I'm attached, I cannot do whatever I want, but it's because I'm attached to people and they're attached to me that we're so much more powerful together in common than I would be alone having to survive to provide for my food, to provide for my shelter, to provide for my uh, heating and all that. Uh, so this notion of attachment of earthbound, it's, it has to be political. It has to be collective. It has to be um, at a certain scale. And here, if you want to, you mentioned class, are we going back to class wars? I, I don't think we ever uh, got out of it. I think, again, there are relations of uh, classes, of exploitations, there are relations of oppression, and as much as it is important to do things at our own individual level, we cannot not uh, be aware of and try to act at a more collective level. Again, whether it's within a company, within our nation state, uh, uh, and one of the things that Bruno Latour also stresses that, uh, well, how can I uh, address issues at the global level myself? There's such a disproportionate uh, scale between what I can do when I speak, when I consume, when I organize with friends, and what happens in terms of global change. Uh, Latour is very critical of uh, ecology because he says, as long as you talk about ecology, as long as you talk about the climate, as long as you talk about pollution, you're not going to go anywhere. Pollution uh, only exists from the point of view of statisticians. Uh, what we can have a grip on are, again, things that are our local attachments. So what Latour does now when he gives a talk, he refers back, and that's a good uh, framing of our discussion because it goes back to recontextualization. He tells people what happened just before the French Revolution in 1788. There was something called cahier de doléances. The king was in a bad situation. He knew something was brewing and wasn't good. And he uh, allowed and asked any uh, uh, parish, any any small community, to write on a booklet 
what was wrong, what needed to be changed, and what was good. And now when Latour gives a talk, he gives people a paper with a few columns. One is, what do you hold on to? What is your? What are your means of survival? What is very important to you? What are you attached to in terms of what are, what are your purposes? But concretely, just here, who, who are your allies? Who are your enemies? And he wants us to start mapping from near what is uh, what is it we care about? What is it we want to uh, fight, etc.? And then he says, when you do this, you realize that a lot of things will imply things that happen in China, will imply things that even if I live in Paris are decided in Washington. And but it is by starting from these local issues and uh, making us aware of how they are connected, going up and up and up to bigger things that we have to rebuild uh, politics for earthbound. And this politics has to do with humans, but with non-humans. It cannot be just social issues. It has to be eco-political issues. But this uh, level of struggle that Mackenzie Wark, as a good old Marxist or new Marxist, whatever you want to call it, but somebody who never sort of reneged. Uh, the Marxist inheritance. Uh, I fully identify with him in saying class is one important level, just like earthbound or citizens or whatever are important level that we have to articulate. Yeah, and that brings us back to the beginning, really, which is the, the stimulation, creation or acknowledgement of ecologies of an ecology of practices and forms that are all interrelating that will require our attention, <laughs> right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Just one, just this systemic view also, it's what I tried to develop in the book that came out after the, the ecology of attention, which is on mediarchy. Mediarchy, just like monarchy or hierarchy, it's was clearly an issue of politics. What is, what are the principles of governance, the principle of power that rule us? And the argument is to say we should stop fooling ourselves thinking that we live in just democracies. They are democratical institutions and they're very precious and they're great. But first we live in a mediarchy. It's uh, what we would call the media that conditions the way we elect people, the way we choose uh, uh, commodities to buy, uh, we, the way we set up desires for ourselves and understanding this intrastructure. I don't even talk about infrastructure. I talk about intrastructure, understanding the intrastructure of the media. Uh, for me, it's developing a Marxist approach uh, beyond Marx, uh, but not negating on, on the, the type of struggles that he advocated in his time. Uh, and for me, it's the continuation of thinking about the ecology of attention. The ecology of attention looks at this from the point of view of, again, individual and collective attention and media looks at it from the structure that provides stimuli to uh, our attentions. Well, I think within that as well, there's uh, some, some great imminent practices that could be put into play. And I found it interesting what you had to say about Bruno Latour and his, uh, his stimulation of that kind of awareness within the audiences. We're coming to the end of our time. Um, I want to thank you again for coming on and sharing your time and your, your intelligence and your, your thought and much of the, the conclusions you've reached, which of course are not complete, but are very interesting way stations uh, on the path forward for our species in thinking about these multiple challenges that a topic like the ecology of attention brings up. And I want to thank you very much, Matthew, for your, your question and the, the subtlety of your reading and the, the, the great issues that you raised uh, in the discussion. Thank you very much.
found in the current state I fall asleep It won't be long until I see I forget what I saw And in the current state 